very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. to everyone around the world, and I want to welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Vambergas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. Man, if this is your first time or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. And to listen to tonight's full interview, go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. Tonight, we go inside the life and work of a former paranormal spy within the U.S. military's Psychic Intelligence Unit. We used remote viewing to uncover military intelligence for the United States from hostile countries. We go behind the scenes of some of his most mind-bending cases, including remote viewing of targets of extraterrestrial origins. We'll discuss fascinating secrets uncovered by the military's remote viewing teams from intelligence on Soviet missile sites to the whereabouts of missing POWs in Vietnam to the location of the Ark of the Covenant. All of this and more with tonight's special guest, Major Edward A. Dames, right now on Veritas. Major Edward A. Dames is a decorated military intelligence officer, an original member of the U.S. Army Prototype Remote Viewing Training Program and a former training and operations officer for the Defense Intelligence Agency's Psychic Intelligence Collection Unit, currently Executive Director for the Matrix Intelligence Agency, a private consulting group. He also travels extensively teaching remote viewing to audiences around the world. He's also the author of the book titled Tell Me What You See, remote viewing cases from the world's premier psychic spy. We have a more comprehensive bio at our website. To learn more about Major Ed Dames and his work, visit his website at learnrv.com, which is also linked at ours. And I would like to welcome, for the first time on Veritas, Major Ed Dames. Hello, Major Dames, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. My pleasure. May I call you Ed? Yeah, of course. I know this may sound repetitive for some of our, our listeners, but for the benefit of those who may not know who you are, give us some background of how you became involved with the remote viewing to start the interview. Well, I, uh, I, was, I was tasked at the, at the Office of Secretary of Defense level with identifying key uh, uh, targets, intelligence uh, targets, uh, mostly Russians. This was in the, in the early 80s. And I was one of about five officers, scientific and technical intelligence officers that were tasked to do that, identify mostly nuclear delivery systems and weapons of mass destruction, particularly uh, biological warfare, which was my uh, specialty. This was an undercover operation, and I had at my disposal many tools, agents on the ground, satellites, and a lot of exotic stuff that we, we have in the business. But one of the tools I had was a nascent intelligence collection tool that used uh, natural psychics. It was an army program. And uh, sometimes, by hook or by crook, I could not but answer the mail. Using all these tools at my disposal, I couldn't get in and penetrate <clears throat> excuse me, some of these very, very classified Russian uh, programs. But this, this particular organization was able to, and I went by various code names, uh, Grill Flame, Grill Finch at the time, was able to give me some insight <clears throat> and uh, essentially tell me where to look. And I became so enthralled with the, the unit itself that I stepped down to take it, take over, stepped down from these celestial cosmic levels of intel to take the unit over as operations and training officer. 
that's how I got involved uh, uh, with the program. And after 30 years, I'm still in awe of, of what, what we call now remote viewing can do. You dedicate your book to Ingo Swan, the late Ingo Swan, and also the Army. So the father and the mother of remote viewing. How close did you work with the late Ingo Swan? Uh, I became Ingo's protege. Ingo was the father of remote viewing and, uh, the, in, in the modern sense. It's evolved greatly since uh, Ingo's discovery at Stanford Research Institute. He and Hal Putoff discovered, if you will, a, a, a syntax and grammar for how the unconscious part of our mind communicates effectively with conscious awareness. It was my job to take that discovery into the deep, dark world of intelligence and massage it into a useful information collection tool. And uh, Ingo trained me in the remote field. I was part of a prototype team uh, that, that they had, in essence, when this discovery happened, Ingo said, well, if they first attempted to train natural psychics, Hella Hammond, Keith Herrera, and others, but their egos were so big and the vanity levels were so high that the natural psychics that were part of the developmental program did not could not cotton up to the idea that one of their own peers came up with the discovery and was going to train them. So out of frustration, uh, Ingo Swan said, give, just give me, who's paying for this program? And Hal Putoff kind of, you know, mumbled, well, it's the Army at this point. He said, send me some Army officers. Because essentially the theory is if this could be trained, anybody can learn it, which is in fact the case. So I became part of a prototype team. And after our training with Ingo, we became better than the best natural psychics on the planet. And so I realized this is a very, very powerful tool, and it's right up my alley, just what I need in, in terms of my balawick in the military. <clears throat> and and then uh, I liked, I, I was so enthralled with remote viewing that Ingo took me under his wing, and I became his protege. Uh, I was more in love with his discovery than he was. He was actually an astrologer and loved astrology. And uh, just as tangentially, he started a whole new genre of art. He was a tremendous artist, uh, a cosmic art. If you go into uh, Washington, D.C., into the, the, the Airspace Museum, you'll see a lot of cosmic art scattered around the building on various floors. But if you go into the director's office, you'll see one of Ingo's originals in the back, in the back of his desk on the wall. I can see how you were tapped. You were already part of the army, but how was Ingo tapped into this program? Well, actually, the, the the use of psychics was started by the Rand Corporation and the U.S. Navy. The the problem was using Monte Carlo theory and game theory. It was very difficult still to track uh, Russian uh, boomers, nuclear submarines. Uh, interestingly, my father, I live in St. Petersburg, Russia now. My uh, father-in-law was a former navigation officer on a Russian boomer. I have the flag off the of the Carolina, the nuclear sub Carolina, he gave that to me. <clears throat> it was very difficult to track uh, nuclear submarines. And so the Navy experimented with, they actually went to cities in the U.S. to crystal ball readers, to Madam X's, to see if, if natural psychics uh, could, ga could give them some insight as to where the location of a particular submarine was, using American submarines as, a, as test targets. That didn't work very well. And so... Harold Putoff, uh, a brilliant uh, physicist, and uh, and uh, several w was tasked by the, uh, the the army at Stanford Research Institute to attempt to gain some insight as to how psychics' minds work by studying the best natural psychics that we could round up in the U.S. What were they doing cognitively in their minds when they were on target? And they were, I'll, I'll get into what that means uh, momentarily. <clears throat> and so that they were studied as what are they actually doing? What's their mind actually processing in terms of, of uh, uh, target descriptions? And that's how the uh, program came about. Ingo was the one that actually developed the best uh, formats and protocols for how he was, as a, as a very, very gifted natural psychic, for how he was processing information against the target, a person, a place, a thing, or an event. So that these, these protocols were established, and then they finally were, were put into a model that was taught. And this is what I teach now, although it's, been, it's greatly evolved. Did you say that you now, you now live in St. Petersburg, Russia? Yes, I live in. I married a very beautiful Russian girl. I'm li both living and sleeping with the enemy. 
Are you there now? No, I'm. In, I'm at my U.S. base of operations in the, in the uh, California and Sacramento area. I I have a lot of U.S. Uh, programs, so missing children, and some gold targets. That we're okay, that, that, that's US. what I yeah. that's what I thought when I saw your nine one six number. I used to live in Sacramento years ago, and I recognized the the area code. But I know you had a connection with Ukraine some time ago. Probably you still do. Is there a reason why you're in St. Petersburg now? And, and and I don't mean to be getting geopolitical, but I think we must. What do you see with this possible conflagration that we are, we're poking the bear. The United States, we're poking the bear. NATO is poking the bear. How long until the bear really becomes disagreeable? And I'm sure you know what I mean. Yeah, I think there's a non sequitur there in your statement. But uh, I lived in Lugansk, formerly Voroshilograd, in uh, erstwhile Soviet Union. My apartment uh, was caught in an artillery crossfire about six months ago, and my friends uh, are dead. Some of my family and my apartment's full of blood and guts. So I got the I got my loved ones out of there, and uh, at, they, re they were essentially refugees. And about 1.5 million refugees now ran to Russia, ran to the enemy, the so-called, and they ran into the Russians' arms to get the heck away from the Kiev government. And so uh, we moved to uh, St. Petersburg, which is the cultural capital of Russia. I'll be ba I was there last month. I'll be back again uh, next month, and uh, I could I could wax oh long and hard and uh, about the current situation, but. Give me your questions specifically, and I'll address them rather than me trying to address something that would, that would take days to do. <laughs> That's fine. We'll, we'll we'll focus on remote viewing first, and because you're you're reciting in Russia, and because of uh, my interest in geopolitics, I'd like you to to cover that as well. Now, well, how it's very interesting that I my, the, my former KGB the KGB former KGB now FSB mm -hmm. I helped them capture terrorists. Now I'm in Chechnya. Uh, I, I, I'm helping, assisting in, in hunting down uh, Russian-designated terrorists. I, the KGB never learned how to train this like we did in the West. They used natural psychics. Uh, the GRU, the former military intelligence, uh, tried to use drugs to induce altered states. We, that's how our program started out. I was a member of part of that program, too. We use altered states to get information, but the discovery of what was coordinate, called coordinate remote viewing in its nascent form, that was so effective and so precise that as operations officer for the U.S. unit, I kicked out the, the ERV team, the extended remote viewing team. But my, I, I began, I met, I met to know my former counter, counterparts, the KGB Extra Sense team. Extra Sense is the Russian word. They're, they're psychics. Who, and I have a chapter in my book called War in the Ether. And uh, you'll see where they discovered us and we discovered them. But we didn't tell our commanders because the programs would have been shut down since they've been compromised. It was very interesting. But now I, I sit down and work with, the, with these people in, in Russia. So extra sensing is the Russian term. Remote viewing is the American term. How, how similar are very different. These, these modalities, the Russian oh, and the American. Yeah, very different. The extra sense, the, the extra sense teams in in Russia still use uh, natural psychics. Uh, they did, and whereas a remote viewing, the way the way it has evolved now, is extremely rigorous, extremely systematic. You're, it, it's not lay back, close your eyes, and tell me what you see. Your eyes are open. It's an attention management skill. Very, very uh, uh, rigorous. Uh, it's a three-part process. We the, the targeting is is first part. How to set up what we call a search term. Everything exists as a pattern of information in what we call the matrix. Everything, and th these patterns of information we are, are the brain is an oscillator and it's plugged into a global universal mind. So we turn our unconscious attention to a target, a person, place, thing, an event. So setting up. That search term is very, very uh, important to us. Then the process of remote, turning our attention to the target itself and describing it, that process, there's no thinking involved. The protocols are followed explicitly of whether we're looking for somebody's lost cat or stolen nuclear weapon. It's the same thing. And, and the process can't really be described unless you learn it. I have a workshop coming up in, in Reno on the 
uh, next uh, in April. I, I don't teach very much anymore, but I have one. The fundamentals of remote viewing. If you, the process is analogous to, let's say, uh, playing a piano, where if you cannot think about the note that you just played, or the music stops, you keep moving, and there is no thinking involved. And that goes on for about 45 minutes to two hours with a couple of breaks at, at the proper points. And then analysis is the third part of remote view. We subject the data to analysis. It's sort of like the process is capturing pieces of a, a jigsaw puzzle, and the analysis is, is splicing them back together to see what we have. And there is no thinking, again, in the in collection process at all. We're, and we don't use natural psychics. Natural psychics do not know when they're on or off target. They do not know when their imagination has overlaid the target data. And when they cap, do capture good data, they subject it uh, consciously to a running analysis, which destroys the product. So we teach we teach students how to avoid all that, how to manage it. Uh, so it's very very different than the, the way natural psychics uh, collect information. Very different. I mentioned to you that uh, I've had for years your your remote viewing DVDs, and one thing that I did learn is that I need to pay attention to my subconscious or my first instinct, because if I pay too much attention, then ego and the conscious mind mind takes over. Is that a, an accurate statement? Yeah. Your egoic, your analytical mind, the analytical part of our, our awareness, that egoic analytical mind is the lower mind. Think of, think of unconscious as a superconscious. That's, that's the co- connection with the matrix, with the global mind, uh, where all the, the font from whence all form arises is this, what we call the, the matrix. And yeah, you really, it, it, it's very frustrating as a new student. Uh, of course, we fix that as, as instructors and coaches, but it's very frustrating as a, for a new student to, to, to wonder where all this accurate information is coming from, what part of their mind is doing this, where they're not thinking at all. Uh, so getting around, getting around ego and, and analysis is a big thing for the first couple of days uh, as a student. And if you have a laptop computer, it probably has a Wi-Fi antenna to access the World Wide Web. Do we have the equivalent of a Wi-Fi antenna in our yeah. bodies, perhaps our pineal gland to access the, well, the universal web of information or, or Akashic record? No, yeah, just, but just don't, don't, don't use any uh, analogy, that, uh, organic analogy. Just think of mind itself. Mm-hmm. Your, your mind, your un- the unconscious part of your mind is like all that, that stuff that's below the tip of the iceberg, tip of the iceberg being allegorically uh, your conscious awareness, your running conscious awareness. And yeah, we have access to it all. But uh, the the comparison stops there because on a Wi-Fi, and on your on your laptop, you do have access. Let, let's compare the internet to the matrix. You do have access to all the information that's out there, but you need a modem, a modulator, demodulator to control that access. Yeah, uh, to otherwise you have the whole web at once. And uh, the Russians ran into this when they used uh, mind-expanding drugs, Halcyon, LSD, and other things, to try to collect information. All of a sudden, all the, there was no modulator, demodulator. There was no way to manage the inflow of the entire matrix. And so they weren't able to effectively use that to collect intelligence. But yeah, we have access to every pattern. And remember, there's no, there's no words out there. It's just patterns. For instance, if I ask you to, as a student, as I give you a blind target where only a couple of numbers are associated with the target because I'm teaching your unconscious how, how to work, how to deliver up information, not your conscious awareness. So I'll give you a couple of numbers, and that's associated with a particular performance of the Balsari Ballet, let's say, just as a training target. And the color of the curtain is red, but but let's say you've never seen the color red before in your life. It's not in your memory. It's not part of your thesaurus, to use my Russian counterpart's word. So you you have access to the pattern of, of the color, on it, but you have no label. In the tachistoscopic sense, you're going right brain to grab a pattern and left brain to look for a label in your memory, a word in this case in English, red, the color red. But it's not there because you've never seen red before. So the best that you can do to manage that particular piece, that particular pattern, is say, well, it, it's like pink. Maybe you've seen pink before. Because there's nothing in your memory to hang a label on that pattern. So you try to match it to the closest. 
in this case, yeah. If you, it, and we run into this all the time when we're working against, like, let's say, UFOs or exotic pieces of weaponry that we've never been exposed to. We don't have the experience as particular in, uh, remote viewing individuals, as professionals, to be able to describe what we're perceiving. But we can use comparisons and allegories. For instance, the arming of a nuclear weapon where let's say I'm training a housewife how to remote view and she's never been inside a nuclear weapon that's been arming where you have vortexes and klystron tubes and all these kinds of things and she might be a, she might have to revert to the next best thing in her knowledge base which is well it's like a cuisinart where you've got spinning blades and the vortex and all this kind of thing. really that, that's the best we were able to do but in some cases it's good enough now how different is the modality today in comparison to when you started, oh, if it stays. Yeah, it's evolved greatly because we've learned so much. It isn't just 30 years of experience of saying, well, you know, I've got 30 years of experience where all you really have is one year repeated 30 times. Uh-uh. We've worked against such a variety of problem sets and crashed and burned the system, picked ourselves back up. For so many years, we've learned a tremendous amount. Ingo Swan himself, if he were alive, the father of remote, could never do what my students and I can do because he just doesn't have that, the knowledge. He was the, the founder, the, the Wright brothers of remote viewing. But it's, it's come a long, long way, a long way indeed. For instance, one example is the search problem. When we were tasked with trying to locate hostages and terrorists in the Mideast, Terry Waite, uh, Terry Anderson, and Colonel uh, Higgins, those folks, by the time we got the information to Blue Light or the Mossad, Blue Light was the predecessor for Delta Force, the target had moved or was dead. Uh, so we had... we. We could describe very accurately within within an hour the state of being or non-being as the case may be for a, a particular uh, hostage or terrorist and, and or terrorist their terrorist captors. We could do that very easily, but when we when when we would draw or sketch it and describe the particular location, we'd have minarets and bazaars and and things like that. We just describe the entire Middle East. We we. We could be given a geographical coordinate and immediately describe what's there, but we couldn't do the obverse. It's sort of like resection in uh, land navigation. But that problem has been solved. I can take a target down to 60 feet now in a matter of hours. And that's a good thing because one of my hobbies is looking for uh, missing exploited children. And uh, many of them are, are dead. Uh, it's about four hours be before... Uh, from the time a captor, and there's always a car involved, always a vehicle, grabs a child, rapes them, and murders them and disposes the body. About four hours total. So my, my goal in the early part years ago was to be able to, to locate a child within four hours. So now we can do this accurately. And we could never do anything like that 30 years ago. Is it the goal of saving these types of children because perhaps you went through this in your family as, as you were growing up? No, no, I don't think so. It's just that I wanted to give back something. So I started experimenting as the operations and training officer in the military unit with, since I, I, I could use any training targets I wanted. And yes, including UFOs and things. We did that. But missing children started experimenting back there to give something back. Now, we've done a number of interviews on remote viewing here, and it seems that everyone has a different opinion on, on the definition of remote viewing. What is your definition of remote viewing? It is an information collection tool, period. It uses the mind, and it's very, very accurate, extremely accurate. And in fact, we have a running error rate of about 20% as, in the, as individuals, but a team of remote viewers working independent of each other against blind targets, their mutually corroborating data is 100%, which in the intelligence business is pretty valuable because nothing can touch that, nothing. We always have to, before we mount an operation in the military, we have to go, we want to go with three sources of information telling us the same thing. But uh, remote viewing, even then there are mistakes, many, many mistakes, but none under the conditions that I just uh, uh, lined up. What causes the mistakes? Because obviously they have been mistakes. There have been mistakes. 
the the mistakes are caused by uh, by what we what we teach to avoid, but they're still there, and it's hard to get around. Uh, running analysis of the data that you that you're picking up, and your uh, and imagination; those two things are what cause the error rates. Could ego even though, be... we, even though we have rigorous techniques, you, and we have to, we try to manage those two things as as much as possible, they still creep in. Could ego be part of it? For example, if some if there's a remote viewer who has a a cause deep to his heart, his or her heart, could ego be a culprit in making errors? Yeah, that's not uh, that's not ego. I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate upon that. Uh, ego is what I had when I I have a I have a very big ego. But when I remove you, that better not be there at all. I can strap it back on after a session. It's true. I can strap it back on after a session is over, but it cannot be there at present. And but for me, I had a highly analytical mind when I, when I entered the, the program for training with Ingo. And I was beside myself. I had no idea when I got a target right, when I accurately described the training target, whether it's the Lincoln Memorial or Washington Monument or something like that, I didn't understand where this information was coming from. I didn't even know what an unconscious was. My ego was reeling because it wanted to solve the problem, but I didn't know what the other it was. So it was very difficult in terms of, of uh, the egoic mind and getting around that. Now I, I view unconscious as my complement of being. It's my partner uh, in, in terms of operations. But the, yeah, analysis, uh, it, it's... It's the analysis, which is the best. What you were, you were saying, I call the Courtney Brown syndrome. Courtney Brown was one of my first civilian students. He, I taught him well. In fact, I, I was uh, uh, the, in the first book that he wrote, Cosmic Voyage. I call it Cosmic Voyeur. I was the. Uh, I had him take my name out because he was doing exactly what you suggested. He was doing. His remote viewing skills were good. But he was trying to drive that square peg into the round hole of his own paradigm. He wanted to believe certain things, so he would, just, he, you know, he would carve away at good data and squeeze it in to his paradigm. So I began to call that the Courtney Brown syndrome. That's what, uh, that's different than ego. It's a paradigm problem. A personal paradigm problem. And you were recruited. You were recruited into the army's prototype. Uh Sci-Spy unit in 1984. How has your life, and I'd like to explore a little bit more about you, how has your life and world changed since then? Uh, once, once you learn remote viewing as an individual, your life changes forever. And you never look at the world the same way again because you know that theoretically you can know anything within the limitations of a bicameral brain and software uh, skills. You can know anything. So the, the, it becomes interesting then for a person that's in that situation, what are the questions they want to ask? Because life is short, it's finite. You only have a certain amount of time to ask a certain, solve a, f a certain amount of problems. So the questions now become very interesting. Questions about yourself, who you are, what you are, what's out there flying around, I used the term flying loosely, uh, what just happened over here when your dog tracked something across the, uh, from left to right across your cabin and then put its head back down? What was that that the dog was looking at? All these kinds of things become possibilities. So, and there's so many, you, it becomes uh, uh, very interesting to sort and sift through those and say, okay, what do I really want to know? And that's how your world changes. I remember back in uh, 1990, 91, when I was just glued to the TV when CNN used to give us all the information we needed, quote-unquote, about Desert Storm. I just fell in love with the technology and how efficient our military was. I believe all that was given to me. Now, many years later, of course, I did my own research and found that Saddam Hussein was set up. Why was Operation Desert Storm the ideal mission for you and your group of remote viewers or psychic spies? No, it wasn't an ideal mission. We were tasked to, uh, to only about a hundred people in uh, in uh, the DoD and outside DoD were allowed access to our program. It had most of your your listeners who have been in the the spy business before know that about billet structures, where when you have very very classified programs, only a few people in order to protect other programs in case your program is, is compromised, you only have a few people that know about it. For instance, I was involved in a program once where only five people in the U.S. government knew about the program. I couldn't even talk to my commander, my boss, about it. 
but in, in, in the remote viewing unit, we had about 100 people uh, that were involved. And most of those folks were intel officers, the, the heads, the in, uh, uh, vice, the assistant chiefs of staff for intelligence at the service level, Army, Navy, Air Force, Coast Guard for drugs, things like that. So th- those were our customers. And when the customers came to us, we had to address their problem. So uh, Desert, and Desert Storm was, was different. There, I was in another very black unit, and I, had, I briefed General Schwarzkopf personally on a program that he had to implement uh, for me. Um, I was the man in black from D.C., and he had to actually implement that uh, program, and it had nothing to do with remote viewing. But the remote viewing we used then, uh, it wasn't used that much in, uh, really in Desert Storm. It really wasn't. The Desert Storm was just cut and dried, you know, military operation. Very little of our support there. Uh, because we need, we were used when, by hook or by crook, we could not penetrate classified, very secret programs. And so that stuff wasn't really extant in, in Desert Storm. Now, g- give us an example of when the client, I mean, the, the customer, one of the government branches came to you to request your remote viewing assistance? Sure. Uh, during the early days, uh, when the, uh, the Trident missile system was a very, was a very good uh, missile system, but it wasn't working out of tubes. It was working on land-based launches from Vandenberg Air Force Base downrange to Quad, Quadrillion Atoll. Everything went well. But when we tried to stick that in tubes in our boomers, our nuclear submarines, would, the, the, the missiles would get up to about 100,000 feet and then go awry. But sometimes on the photography that that was associated with these launches, a glowing white sphere was picked up near the top of the missile because the missile hadn't gone ballistic yet, near near the top of the of the rocket, and then the missile veered off course or worse. And so the Navy came to us and said, "What's this?" <laughs> so we worked a couple of weeks, I you know, and I came back to the Navy and said, "Well." It's real, all right, and it is affecting your your test. Okay, is it Russian? The Navy would say, <laughs> no. Well, whose is it? I said, well, it belongs to somebody that's not from here. Uh, Wait a second. Cannot- when, when you say when you say this, you mean an unknown object interacting with a missile? Roger. Huh. Yeah. And so I said, well, it the people that own it, I use people loosely. They're not from around here. Well, say again, uh, it, uh, Dames is. Because they didn't know my rank, I was undercover. I was a captain at the time. But they, mm-hmm. uh, okay, what do you mean not from around here? I said they're not from around here, <laughs> and I get this glazed look and no more comment. Just a thank you, and they never came back because it was beyond their their belief system, their paradigm that there was something right. from off off planet, for instance, could affect was affecting the, the missiles. And in subsequent years, we found out that um, looking at KH-9 and KH-11 satellite photography, always these these big glowing white spheres above boomers, Soviet and U.S. boomers on the photography. And we looked at those, and we've come to find out now, make a long story short, that whatever that system is out there, whether they're robots or whatever – they know where every single warhead, no, a part of every single country is, and they can shut those down at a moment's notice. They inventory them all the time, and they can shut them down, which means there will never be, nor would there have ever been, a nuclear slugfest on this planet. Yeah, Hiroshima and Nagasaki were allowed, so we were aware of the consequences of our madness, our actions, but there will never be a nuclear slugfest because that system out there will not allow it. Now, when you say the system, can you expand expand on that? No, no, it's a, it's made up of. Uh, there's a surface. I, I can't go into de- too much detail here okay. because uh, I, I will I will uh, interfere with the people, <laughs> individuals. There are some humans involved, but they weren't they were not born here on this planet. They were born somewhere else on far away. Oh, and yeah, and but the the individuals that actually. The worlds in which these humans were raised, both artificial and natural, those worlds were inhabited by non-humans long ago. Uh, and uh, but there are, the, the, yeah, the interference is a big system, and we're talking about vast spans of time. And it, where I, I used to lead expeditions 
see Close Encounters of the Second Kind, uh, Hans Adam von Unzu-Lichtenstein, the Crown Prince of Lichtenstein, paid for me to put together, assemble a team of the best scientists in this nation, best engineers, go out and look at look at this stuff and try to, so they could try to get enough information about them in ground truth information plus remote food so they could reverse engineer the skunk or could reverse engineer some of this technology and they, they asked me you know to do a project and I came back and I on this technology and I said I don't know how these things are moving it's like an electron hole that they create in front of them and move into it as they go oh thanks Ed and uh, they wanted to, to try to reverse engineer something that's not only 100 million years ahead of us uh, in technology where if you had a, a Neanderthal that stumbled upon a Cadillac, they wouldn't understand what they're right. looking at and, because they don't even understand the concept of a screw, much less this. So this is a kind of problem we have to try to deal with. and we, So we have to revert to allegory and metaphor sometimes in order to cope with these kinds of advanced things. Well, you don't have to go as back as the Neanderthals. You can just parachute an iPad or an iPhone on, you know, in the middle of the Amazon forest and have one of those tribes that hasn't interacted with the Western world see what they do with it, and they won't be able to do anything. They'll, they'll probably think it's magic. Yeah, actually, some of the what the public doesn't know, and I've never said this before, is that uh, there's there's really a speculation that a lot of uh, our technology is. Uh, ET and it's reverse engineered. For instance, the integrated circuit. I'm sure you've heard these stories. I have. Yeah, but it's not extraterrestrial. What actually happened was the first test of a time machine. It's not a time machine. It's the, if you if you if you put if you spin something the right way in the right place and the, and it's moving at the right speed. For instance, tornadoes. If a tornado passes by a house sometimes, if it doesn't destroy the house, you have straw and wood that's co-located uh, in, that's actually in the glass. So what actually happened is the glass and the wood, because of the tornado's orientation and speed, that actually slowed time down for one of those things. They shared the same space momentarily. And then the tornado moved on, and now these things like the movie uh, Philadelphia Experiment, you know, are fused. Mm-hmm. So this, uh, one of these machines in the not-too-distant future, I mean within the next decade or so, will actually, it's, it's launched like a rocket and disappears. It lands back in the 1950s. And so, the, and it has in it all the te- technology that we know today that in the 1950s is unrecognizable. We just had transistor radios, okay? And so that, that was construed as being extraterrestrial. And yes, a lot of the stuff in there was reverse, was was duplicated and rever- tested and reverse engineered. But it's not extraterrestrial ET. It's ours. It's it. This thing disappeared because it was part of a prototype test to move in time, and it did. But it got lost. So it moved actually from its launch point about uh, two to four hundred miles away and plopped down in the past in the 1950s. Uh, uh, interesting stuff. Interesting that you say all this because I've been not coming to the conclusion because I really don't have proof, but to the suspicion that, for example, many people watch ancient aliens and they look at the pyramids and all the, the great monuments that we have and they attribute it to aliens. What about if in the past we had that technology, but there was a cataclysm? And when there's a cataclysm, let's say today, you and I would not be focusing on saving humanity. We'll be focused on saving our loved ones first, survival. And then 100 years down the road, somebody digs 20 feet on the ground and they find an iPod, or I keep giving Apple too much credit here, but they, 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 they unearth and they say, oh, this must be alien, when in fact it was us, but we lost the ability to make it because of the cataclysm. Yeah, it was both. It was both. Uh, it was both humans, and I don't know how many times this has happened. You know, I've talked about the sun going on a rampage, which it's about to do, and I, I think that these solar cycles, these uh, these twenty-four, these twelve-year solar cycles, are really epiphenomena on a very big cycle, which is about eleven thousand five hundred years. And about every eleven thousand five hundred years, you know, the sun burps and uh, takes down uh, uh, civilization uh, with it, or most of it, not not quite all. And I, so I think there's been other civilizations, but I also know there are extraterrestrials that have come and gone, and may still be here as well. So, so it's it's both, and 
like I say, mind is outside of time. When, as a remote viewer, you have to be, be careful. We, we have what we call temporal qualifiers. We have to be able to try to, to, to locate ourselves in time because mind, think of mind as the fifth dimension. It looks down on this broad panoply of events throughout time and space. So uh, we don't know where we are in time unless we de- make uh, that part of the search term uh, itself. So we, there's a lot of care that goes into the, to that type of work. You mentioned that this grid that's managed by, quote-unquote, others that will not allow nuclear conflagration again. But again, we had Nagasaki, we had Hiroshima. Uh-huh. People I, think I, what I said, though, they won't allow a nuclear slugfest. There will not be... Yeah. We had to be aware of the consequences of our actions, including the fear that's associated with the possibility of a nuclear war. It's sort of like the prime directive. If right. you pop into, you know, this anthropologically speaking, if you pop into a civilization uh, and land on the White House lawn, you homogenize all the races that you deal with. And this neck of, uh, this neck of the, our parsec will all be the same, even though we're different entities, we'll all have the same stuff, sort of like the UN meetings, where you have uh, lesser developed countries sitting down with their spears and shields at the UN, next to uh, Russians and and. Uh, and French and, and and us who have nuclear weapons, uh, it, it you'll homogenize the uh, all the races. This idea, the prime directive that Roddenberry had, and that was implanted. It, Roddenberry, a lot of Hollywood types were implanted uh, with ideas. These were not physical implants. They were glowing white spheres hovering about them, planting ideas as they slept. And the, these men would wake up with the idea. They thought their imagination was producing an idea for a new show or a new series, but uh-uh, it's conditioning, cultural conditioning. Downloads? Yeah, it's, it's a, a, a program. It's a program where you're, when you're sleeping, something is programmed into your mind, an idea, and you wake up with this idea in your mind and look at it, influence that Hollywood and television has on people. I haven't watched TV since I was 17 years old, but a lot of people do watch it. And, and, and movies and television have a huge impact now on the Internet. And people that are producers and writers, these people, if they're influenced in terms of their mind, about ideas, they can sway entire segments of society worldwide. So that becomes a primary target for people that want to influence culture on Earth. Well, of course, we had the Kardashians. That's the new pure American uh, culture being disseminated out there. Actually, and I don't, I don't know who the Kardashians are. <laughs> well, good for you. I'm they're glad that you don't. <laughs> I'm glad you don't know who they are. But they're lowering. I've heard of, Kim, I, I've heard of the name Kim Kardashian, but I, I, I assume that's a woman. That's uh, a woman, and they're lowering everybody's IQ who watches them. But that's a different subject. But what I, what I'm saying about the nuclear conflagration, why is it that they allow? A Chernobyl. They allow a Fukushima. Isn't that conflagration light? Isn't that affecting, yes. for example, the entire Pacific Ocean yes, in, the, in Fukushima? It is. It is absolutely the marine and the airborne plumes. Watch what they do, and why are they allowing that? Again, we have to be aware of the consequences of our actions. I lived near Chernobyl. You know, I know how serious that was, and and, and as you know, I predicted Fukushima for the Japanese TV. I said, "This is what's going to happen during the next earthquake in in, in Tokyo." They said, "Ed, we can't tell the public that." I said, "No, I understand that because your government has no control over it." Uh, but I predicted that happening, and uh, I, I don't want to look at anything else. Actually, when I uh, Fukushima is the most catastrophic man-made disaster in human history. Now, our history only goes back about 9,600 years. Gee, I wonder why that is. And all of a sudden, there were pyramids and mathematics. But it's, it's this, the sun, again, uh, speaking up. Uh, yeah, it's, it's the most catastrophic thing. In, uh, it, it's like a Chernobyl daily. And yeah, but you know what? I know something interesting. It, it, they do have the capability of cleaning this up. But I don't think they're going to do it right away until we are aware of the consequences of our action. The reason I know they have the capability is this. I think you might be interested, as well as your listeners. The uh, Israelis have some nuclear weapons, and they had to develop them. But they had nowhere to test them because Israel, I mean, one nuclear weapon is is militarily decisive in, in Israel. Dimona. Uh, 
Yeah, yeah. So they had to develop weapons, but they had nowhere to test them. So in collusion with South Africans back in the 60s, early 60s, the South Africans agreed in exchange for technology to allow the Israelis to test nuclear weapons on land and off the, their coast. Well, our satellites at the time were pretty primitive, and I can't go into the details now, but they were primitive, and they picked up a flash off the coast of South Africa once, and that was a test. But there was another time that we looked at where there was a ground test in South Africa. Now, if you want to keep something covert or clandestine, you don't the signatures, if you look at the DPRK now, uh, uh, North Korea, North Korea yeah. People's Republic, you can see the signature when they're starting, or, or formerly in Nevada, Nevada test site. There's all kinds of diagnostics that have to go into a test, and they're above ground and underground as well. And you can see the signature, the footprint of a test coming up because of all the safety stuff and the diagnostics. But if you want to keep something secret, the safety stuff is not there which means you're going to have some radioactive gas release or possibly some debris, some, some ground debris. And that's what happened in South Africa, and that's very dangerous, too. You might as well have a cobalt bomb. Well, something parked on the back of Earth's moon, big, oh, it must have been 60 feet high uh, or, or higher. It uh, looked like a three-sided teepee, a tent, with ring, uh, three, uh, uh, with ring structures on the, on the sides. This thing disappeared off the back of the moon, popped in immediately over that test, that South African-Israeli test, the secret test, vacuumed up, for lack of a better word, all the radiation, the residual radiation that escaped from the secret test, vacuumed it up, turned it into something like electricity. We, we don't understand the technology, of course. Something like electricity, and this thing, bam, parked right back on the back of the moon again. So whatever, something that's out there, whatever, I, I don't know how many robots or races, I, there's so many, something has the capability of, of cleaning up our stupidity, our insanity, the, res, the, the stupidity. results, the artifacts of our insanity. If I had a remote viewing team at my disposal. There were so many things that I would want to remove you. For example, a few years oh, ago, you remember, yeah, absolutely. You remember in Israel, some people say it's a hoax. Some people say it's not that uh, light, that UFO that there was parked on top of the, the mm -hmm. Temple Mount. Did you yeah. ever remove you? Yes. Oh, yeah. 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 I did. Cause I was, I was fascinated with, it. I thought it was a fake uh, at first, but it's not, it is not a fake. That's, that's it, my impression too. Tell me more. I can't because it gets. It, it, in fact, I'll lose my audience if I go into any more about this, about that. It's so esoteric. It, it is so esoteric. It, it deals with something. It deals with an intelligence that's been on this planet since before we were here. Let me just make something clear, Ed. You are in a platform where we can actually take our white gloves off. There's absolutely no censorship. And let me guarantee to you that you won't lose your audience. To the contrary. Yeah, it deals. There's an intelligence on the planet. It's it's not angelic, and it's not. Which I believe. I firmly believe in angels and and the power of prayer. But it, this is not angelic, and it's, but it it is an intelligence that exists on this world, and it's from. It's one of those. It's one of those. It's associated with that intelligence, but it's it's beyond my comprehension. Why the Temple Mount? What was the, of course, that's a very significant yeah, that's spiritual. The, what it, yeah, yeah, it, it, it is because, again, I'm, I'm afraid of losing my audience, but I'm going to have to say it. The best that I could discern is this idea of uh, a war in heaven, this kind of idea. It actually it does appear to be, there. it appears to be something to that. There's something going on at an invisible level, another dimension level, that where there is a conflict. And this was associated with that in some way that I can't fathom. Obviously, they wanted to, if, it, if this is true, and it's not a hoax, if it's true, they want it to be seen. And if yes. so, why? Well, I'm not sure if they wanted to be seen. I mean, that's, a, that's an assumption, a postulate. Maybe it's something they had to do, and the artifact of the presence was this clone sphere. I didn't look at that. I, I, did, I didn't attempt to, 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 to get into that. Okay, that's fine. Have you heard about the Egyptian artifacts that were found in Israel? Somebody was a collector, and they have sequestered that from the public. Have you heard that? 
Uh, no, I ha- I'm not aware of it. Okay, then I won't go into details then. Um, but you mentioned the grid again, once again, uh, Fukushima, Chernobyl, and so on. We have several, several nuclear power plants in the United States. All it takes is a, a uh, what's what the name, an EMP to completely eradicate the, the electric grid here. And it takes about, what, seven to 30 days for each of our nuclear power plants to go into meltdown. And that's just, we're talking about one, Fukushima. Imagine all of them at the same time. Well, no, it's actually four or five days in some cases, depending on the de- reactor design to go into right. a meltdown. Then you have, uh, the, yeah, I, I mean, I, I lecture on this uh, after hours in my workshops. I stay up until about two in the morning with my workshop attendees. We talk about all the dynamics and the physics behind the stuff and why. Long story short, the New Madrid Fault, if there is an earthquake in the New Madrid Fault, you're talking about easily 14 reactors being affected. Now, if you can't get if, – if, if, and the grids, the power grids are not going to go down by EMPs. Those weapons are very expensive, and they're not used against power grids necessarily. The sun, the effects of uh, the, the, what I call the kill shot, a series of massive coronal mass ejections that are coming up soon, they will take down power grids, not all at once, but a lot. And, and the, the, the grids aren't coming back up. The transformers will be out. Grids are not going to come back up you know, for six months to two years, if, they, if ever – the ones that do go down over time. Well, if, if you can't get diesel fuel to the generators and these nuclear power plants, you can't cool them. So if they run out of diesel fuel, they're going down. Exactly. They're, they are going to be not just meltdowns, but melt-throughs. You're going to have corium coming out of the container, like what happened in, in Fukushima Daiichi and Chernobyl. And that is an extreme. Scientists say that it will be at least 20,000 years before the area around Chernobyl is inhabitable, safely inhabitable, okay? Some of the Kishtim disaster, which the U.S. public doesn't know about, that's a 500-mile radius around uh, uh, that explosion way out in in, uh, the hinterlands in Russia, 500 years before the area will be safely inhabitable by humans again. These, (laughs) the damage is... Is unbelievable. We've created a monster beyond the monster. And for those people who say that a nuclear detonation or, or a fallout does not create the monsters that we see, and I hate to, to, to put, the, the, put the label, but genetic mutations, I've seen it for myself. I went to Cuba and I saw a lot of the victims from Chernobyl there. So I've seen what that does. Imagine what's happening in in. Fukushima as well, but you know. Oh, the next generation of the northern Japanese is finished. Uh, the, the the mutations will be horrible. In fact, uh, secretly, the about a year ago or more than that now, the uh, Japanese government began to negotiate with Myanmar and China to a certain degree, uh, especially the island of Hainan, to to evacuate the entire city of Tokyo out of the country because they're aware of this. And governments. Have no when they have no control over something, whether it's UFOs shutting down uh, missile uh, warheads, uh, guidance systems, or something like uh, Fukushima. When they have no control, they're not going to tell the public that they don't know what to do. <laughs> no government's going to do that because the government will not be it will have any sense of well, I won't say responsibility, but that, that they will the citizens will no longer trust them and they no longer believe that they can do anything about it and panic. But that's they should panic. Well, if Katrina is any indicator, then you know what, why they wouldn't tell you. But, you know, with Tokyo, this has been happening since 1967. They actually proposed moving Tokyo away from the coast because the majority of the people in Japan live around the coast and moving the, the, the people away from that because of what they expected in the future. An earthquake forward, you know, followed by a tsunami. What happened in 2011? Well, then we have it. That's why, uh, for, uh, in... in it was 2004, or I think it was 2004, the uh, TV Asahi, I did a lot of TV work uh, against the Japanese mafia and things, uh, using remote viewing, tracked down them in Japan and Tokyo. And TV Asahi came back to me when I lived in Maui, on the island of Maui, and uh, said, look, we're really concerned about 
the effects of the next earthquake on Tokyo. They call it X. The program was called X Day. So you can see me remote view. Actually, I think it's on the, out there on the web in a few places. You actually see me working that problem. The next large earthquake, how it will affect Tokyo. And I, the conclusion was my results pointed to the the fact that. Tokyo will not be that, that affected. Some of the facades and older buildings will collapse. There'll be a little bit of flooding in the subway. But take a look at this. You guys have a very serious problem. One of your reactors is going to break and cause at least a mini Chernobyl. And that's when they said, hey, we can't tell the public that. I said, how well I know. But I went on coast to coast uh, here in this country and announced it. You can go, in fact, you can go to my producers have a website. The, it's FukushimaPredicted.com, I think. You can see the actual work uh, on, that, on that project. Or you can bounce to it from LearnRV.com. Not to undermine any of the lives lost, but Japan was very lucky that this happened more to the north. If this had happened in Tokyo, how much loss of oh, life? Oh, oh there, there's a breeder reactor to the... Oh, there's a breeder reactor... Um, Think of the name in a moment. It's named after the Japanese, of all things, the Japanese uh, god of wisdom. Uh, <laughs> it's a breeder reactor uh, to the uh, to the west of Tokyo. If that broke, whoa! <laughs> That's the, I, I, I can't even think of the, just think of what the consequences would be. <laughs> Manju Bosatsu, I believe that's that's the name of the uh, the uh, Japanese uh, god god that you're you're referring to. But you know, it could be a Carrington event, it could be a galactic superwave. And when people think of weather, people think of you know a tsunami, they think of a hurricane, they think of a, a cyclone, but they don't think of space yeah. weather. Many things can happen in our solar system and beyond. Even recently, you probably heard of uh, former CIA director James Woolsey meeting with a brain tank and this is this is this is video there the video is available on youtube where they're talking about this specific scenario did you watch that video by the way uh, no no i haven't i i mean i don't need to <laughs> because we've described exactly what's coming down the because you know of, yeah in terms of geophysics solar physics and uh, climatology on on this planet now we're in for mr toad's wild ride and on our watch the worst thing though uh, uh, what government, is our government doing, Ed, to protect the electric grid? They're they're not doing anything to protect the electric grid. They can't. It's too big. What they're doing is protecting uh, the, the continuity cog sites, like Denver Airport, places like that. Uh, some things I can't talk about. But you know, they're inside mountains and protecting themselves, <laughs> and not protecting us. Wait a second. You you mentioned Denver. You know, we have to take a one and only intermission. But I want to say one more time. There's no censorship here. There's no big company watching over us and what we're saying. So I hope that we can remove our white gloves and discuss everything without any censorship. No, you mentioned... I, I, you mentioned, I can't do that. I understand that. Don't forget I was part of the system and I will go to prison if I say the wrong thing. Absolutely. And I don't want you to break your oath or, or go beyond what's classified. I just want to be able to knock on that door to get as close to that door as possible. Denver, talk about Denver. I want to discuss the extraterrestrial factor. I want to discuss the possible breakaway civilization that may be above us that we're not aware of, perhaps life in other planets in our solar system. But how can people buy your book, learn more about RV and all the other things that you discuss? Oh, the, the best way is just to go to learnrv.com uh, and take a look at that site. If you go into the forums there, that's where I and my professionals teach advanced advanced stuff uh, particularly. And all the questions you'd ever want to know about remote viewing have probably already been answered there in those forums. That's the best spot uh, to go to. And I want to ask Ed when we come back, what is the most important target he's ever remote viewed? And also, with all this geopolitical turmoil that we see, all the time now. What has he remote viewed that we should know so we can prepare? All of this when we come back. I'm here with my special guest, Major Ed Dames, discussing remote viewing. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important Veritas interview. If you enjoyed it and wish to listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com, click on members, or subscribe or tell someone else who will enjoy this and all our radio programs. If you are listening on YouTube, like, subscribe, and share it. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store, where you can purchase pure organic sulfur 
detoxified iodine, supplements, our USB drive with all our shows, gift certificates, rebounders, and much more. Now, we'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and I'll see you in the Veritas member section. Enjoy. Voyager spacecraft back in the early 1990s. 